But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit inspired St. Mark to clue us in that this teaching of our Lord's was kind of hard to understand, right? Because that's exactly how it presents itself on the face of it. What is this abomination of desolation? What are all these things? And that's why um, St. Mark was inspired to write, let the reader understand. Like, this is going to take some careful attention to really understand what's going on here. So, indeed, that's the careful attention I want to pay together this morning. So Jesus, when he uses this phrase, abomination of desolation, and he's talking like this, he's referencing two things that stood in his past to have that sort of make sense and kind of put flesh on this cryptic phrase. And he's teaching about two things in, the, in his, what were his mortal future. One of them which has already happened from where we sit, and another that was still waiting to happen. So track with me, it's going to be really dense for like the first five minutes, and then it'll be a, bit, a little less heady. But it's a tr- tricky passage. So the phrase, uh, as we heard read in Daniel chapter 12, goes back to Daniel, who prophesied about 500 years before Jesus. And th- this, I, this teaching of a, abomination desolation received a partial fulfillment. So think of, it, think of like a schoolroom like timeline. So there's Daniel 500 years before Christ. Um, in the year 167 BC, this prophecy of Daniel's received a partial fulfillment when this pagan Syrian king um, set up uh, a statue to Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem, the holy temple, the one temple of the Jews, the true worshipping place, place for Yahweh. They set up a t- this pagan king set up a statue to Zeus and sacrificed, of all things, pigs to, the t- to Zeus. You think about kosher pigs. To, this was ho- horrifying, and it sparked the Maccabean revolt. Right? There was this enormous coup, sort of like... Um, you know, the, um, a war of revolution, attempted revolution, to try and overthrow these overlords. And these zealous Maccabees fought back. Uh, and they recognized, and they used the language, this is the abomination of desolation. This, to sacrifice pigs to Zeus on the site of the holy temple? And they, they heard that Daniel's prophecy was being fulfilled. And this left a permanent mark um, on the imagination of the Jews of Jesus' time. So that was only 167 years before Jesus came, in the same way that the Revolutionary War still sits, leaves this a permanent mark on our minds, right? And as Americans, even though it's a couple hundred years ago. Um, and it's this past that's being referenced when he says, let the reader understand. This is, what, this is the, the thing that Jesus is referencing when he says, abomination of desolation. And Jesus, relying on these two things in the past, He's talking about two things in the future. The first was very practical. He's saying that there's yet more fulfillment to this prophecy of Daniel. Like the check hasn't been fully cashed yet. Yes, that thing that happened, that was an instance of it. But there's more to come. Actually, two more things to come. Um, the first were in the, for the generation immediately after the, uh, the life of Christ. We see something very similar happen. Um, so in... In AD 70, 70 years after Jesus' birth, the Romans, of course, come in and um, destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem, and they level it. 
And what did they put on top of the rubble? A giant flag with a Roman eagle to say, this empire has conquered you Jewish people. And, that, and to see it so that when Jews looked up, I mean, think about the Psalms of Ascent, of Ascent. You know, they're walking up to the temple and they used to see the Temple Mount. And now they see the Roman eagle flying where it once stood. And they connected the dots. And then another 55 years later, so history lesson's almost over, but thank you for tracking with me. Um, in 135, this sort of the last great hurrah, this, this revolutionary, like the Maccabees before, named Bar Kokhba, said, we're going to rebuild the temple, we're going to tear down that eagle, we're going to do this, and he tries to start a revolt, and the Romans just annihilated him. And what did they, they actually rubbed salt in the wound. They said, oh, you didn't like the insignia? They set up an even bigger statue to Zeus and dedicated it as a pagan temple on the site of where the Jewish temple, they, and they built it intentionally right over where the Holy of Holies had been. The abomination that causes desolation, right? De- devastation, morally and emotionally. So Jesus is actually speaking in a, as a prophet, just like Daniel before, but of course as the inspirer of all the prophets. He's saying these things are going to happen, and when this happens, um, know that it was prophesied beforehand, but don't stick around. Don't join the revolution. Flee to the mountains. Get out of Jerusalem. Get away from otherwise you're going to get squashed by the Roman military. So he's actually offering a very direct pastoral counsel that Simon Bar Kokhba is not the Messiah. Don't believe it. When someone else says, like, Messiah 2.0 is here, don't believe it. Don't get slaughtered in the skirmish. So Jesus' words have already had a partial fulfillment, but just like all we see the prophecies of, in the prophecies of Scripture, they receive these partial fulfillments, but they're all signposts pointing towards the very end the end of um, the human history timeline as, as we know it. Every word of Scripture is eternal. Right? It says the word of God will not pass away. So these words aren't, we don't know, study this history of 87 and 81, 35, and be like, oh, well, then we don't need these verses anymore. Right? The verses still stand. Jesus is still teaching us something through them. And just like Antiochus Epiphanes, 167 BC, pointed towards what would happen? These are all signposts pointing towards. Pointing towards what? Well, most concretely, um, and all of the New Testament writers are inspired by the Spirit to pick this up. These are all signposts pointing towards what we refer to simply as the end times. And the, everything that happened to the one human, man-made temple in Jerusalem are warning signs of what will happen in the Church of Christ. In, as we approach the end times. So what the real warning here is that the church, us, we don't need to be so concerned about the enemy outside our walls. Right? And by enemy, I mean spiritual enemy. Right? It's unsurprising that someone who doesn't love Jesus doesn't love Jesus and doesn't obey him and doesn't even like to hear about him. Right? That the world would have opposition to the church from outside, unsurprising, expected. And, and really, no, no real threat. There's the threat from outside is nothing. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? Nothing would be scarier in this world than hell, but that's nothing in the face of Christ's church. And Jesus says the thing we should be on guard about, interpreting this passage, letting the re- trying to understand this passage, is the world weaseling its way inside the church. Right? The abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Right? That there were Roman insignias all around the Roman Empire. Right, of course, it's the Roman Empire. 
that there's a Roman insignia standing on the temple, right? that there's pagan altars all around the world, of course. But to put a pagan altar on the side of the temple, that's when it's standing where it ought not to be. In Jesus, we, don't, we are not bound to one physical spot to worship God anymore. Right? We worship now in spirit and in truth all over the globe. And so what exactly this looks like is, is a little trickier to pin down. It's not as obvious as a statue to Zeus right, on a Jerusalem mount. The abomination of desolation, the best I can interpret it, is that, that Christ is warning us about is at the level of teaching, spiritual teaching in the church. We hear throughout the scriptures, the New Testament, that in the very last days there will come a singular figure, a particular person, that St. Paul calls the man of lawlessness. <clears throat> St. John calls him the Antichrist. And it, he'll say, it says, it's prophesied, that he'll have authority in the church. It's not going to be something out there. right? That's an obvious enemy. The very nature of it is it'll actually be set up inside the church, standing where it ought not to be. And as St. John says, um, there, a singular Antichrist will come, but the spirit of Antichrist, the little Antichrists, sort of are working their way in as the day grows longer. Actually paving the way for the reception of the Antichrist. When the abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not to be. So what's this false teaching? or What's the shape of it that we're supposed to be on guard about? Um, Jesus it gives us um, some strong clues. First he says... Um, don't be misled when someone identifies Christ in like one particular place, right? Like, oh, here's the Christ. There's the Christ. Right? The message is false because Christ is accessible to all of us in prayer. Right? When someone says, oh, no, no, this one teacher, this is the last true teacher on earth. Or this one denomination, this is the only place where Christ is found. Or if you make pilgrimage to this one site, that's the place to have a true spiritual encounter, the only place. If anyone says, look, here he is, there he is, don't believe it. Jesus says we should also be unconvinced by things that are impressive, miracles and signs and things that sort of like make you go, whoa. He says false prophets, verse 22, will arise and perform signs and wonders. So it doesn't mean that every sign and wonder is from the enemy. Some of them are from God. But by themselves, they're not, they shouldn't be convincing. It shouldn't be like, well, that teacher does miracles. I guess we should listen to him. No, Jesus specifically said, don't let that be the criteria. And as to the content of the false teaching that we should be on guard against, um, I think it's telling. I think the thing that the Lord is, um, you know, as he prophesied real history of what happened in AD 70, and that that was a signpost for the things to come, on the rubble of the temple was set up a symbol of powerful, wealthy empire that represented the common ideals of the nation. So I've been meditating on this actually for a number of years. And the thing that keeps distilling in my mind is that if ever Christian teaching perfectly lines up with the common ideals of a nation, we should be quite uh, um, attentive and even a bit worried. And it's not to say that a nation won't sometimes get things right and there'll be alignment, right? When a nation says don't murder and the church says don't murder, that's great that they're in alignment, right? But when the church is teaching and it sounds like, wow, this sounds just like what you could hear in any of the sort of national voice outlets, that's when I think we should be worried. Triply cautious, at least. 
So if we sort of take note of what does our American culture um, openly celebrate, individual liberty and autonomy, the acquisition of wealth, personal satisfaction, the discoveries of the hard sciences, technological developments, right? All the things that like anyone sort of high fives, like, yeah, this is what we do. It's not that it's bad in itself. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to be careful with what the church is saying is just that. Reappropriated. If we hear those messages inside the church, we need to examine, is this one of the happy alignments or is there something standing where it ought not to be? Right? The abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Um, two things that I feel like I keep, that I discern taking place in the church of our generation, and by that I mean our century, not like the last few months, of the last century, is to think of Christian discipleship as the means to an end. And whether that end is the strengthening of our nation or my own happiness, right? if following Jesus is the means to the end, that's, I think, one of those, it's like the, the warning flag, the canary in the mine of, watch out. False teaching is probably on the way. Because Jesus is the end. He is the end. We do it just to be with him, to be saved in him and to know him. And are there benefits? Of course. But we don't do it as a means to the end of those benefits. So we don't know when the Lord will come. It could be this afternoon. But the church fathers always thought it would be on a Sunday. I don't know know why they thought that, but... um, it could be this afternoon, which is a sobering thought. Um, it could be another 100 years from now, or 200 hours. I don't, the Lord says nobody knows the day or the hour. But he does tell us what to do when we see sort of the storm brewing. And he says, flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Flee so intently that you don't even stop to grab your things. Right? He says, don't even go into your house to grab your stuff. Just, just go. And of course, that had a partial fulfillment when you saw the Roman army approaching in the year 66. Um, get to the mountains right then. But I think the meaning is not exhausted by that. And I was thinking, the mountains in the Bible are always the place where you go to meet God. Right? Moses goes up to Sinai to see God and to receive the commandments. Elijah goes up also Sinai. Um, its nickname was Horeb. Um, to meet God. When... Jesus shows himself most profoundly and gloriously to the disciples. Where does he go? The Mount of Transfiguration. The mountains are these profound encounters with God, spiritual encounters with God. So when we say, we hear Mark saying, let the reader understand, what is Jesus telling us in the year 2021, flee to the mountains? It's not a call to go be a prepper in the woods. Jesus specifically rules it out when he says, don't grab anything, right? Stockpiling money or food or guns. Um, is grabbing something. (laughs) So that's actually one meaning that's ruled out. It's a call, I believe, to flee to the interior life in prayer, the mountain of meeting God. As the world darkens and some of the world starts to creep into the church, you always have access to God the Father through Christ Jesus in the prayer closet of your heart. That's one thing that no tyrants, no false teacher in the church can take away from you. Flee to that mountain. It will be one of the paradoxes of the last days that spiritual life will actually be burning very hot among the elect. Even as a large portion of the church is led astray. It's a call, I believe, to prayer. Flee to the mountains. Flee to the interior life of prayer as things around grow dark. To seek Jesus more earnestly. To look for him more searchingly. 
and, and letting go more frequently of attachment to the things in our houses. Just fleeing to Jesus. Who, in his mysterious providence, is allowing the very tribulation that troubles the bride for whom he died. This isn't some, like, blooper in the plan. That's the mysterious thing. Jesus is telling us ahead of time, this is going to happen. He's overseeing the whole thing. It's a strange and mysterious sifting and testing of the church of God. He allows the tribulation of the church. And he'll allow all manner, as we read, as, you know, when you crack open Revelation, you're going to have to read one page to see that everything's going to get worse. And people say, are we in the end times? I'm like, well, it's going to be worse than it's ever been, and it's been pretty bad in human history. So we're, I don't think we're quite there yet. A lot of bad things are going to happen in nature, with death, and false teaching in the church. Until, and this is the happy promise, until he cuts it short. Right? He says he's going to bring it to a very dramatic and definite end when he comes back to judge the world to restore all things, to banish all evil away forever, to say to all those who clung to him by faith on the mountain of prayer, welcome, welcome to paradise forever. And he remakes the heavens and the earth for us to enjoy forever. So what the Lord is doing in telling us these things is to say, don't be um, caught off guard. That's specifically the thing he says to do is be on guard when things around us darken. He's telling us the night's going to get darker, but the morning will come. He gave us actually the very rotation of the earth to give us an image of what we are living through in human history. The night will get darker, and then dawn will come. Christ will come back again, and all shall be well. Amen.